We thank you, Lord God, that you are a gardener, that you work the soil of our hearts, that you tend to the plants that are growing within us, that you make good on your promises. We ask that this day we would know more of your love, more of your grace, more of your mercy, and more of your hope. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. So Dave and I both come from farmer stock. My great-grandfather was a farmer in um, eastern Pennsylvania outside of Philadelphia. Um, My grandmother uh, grew up on that farm, and and I have letters from him when uh, when his crops failed that he wrote to my great-grandmother because he had, he had to go west to the Colorado area to help work on the railroads in order to support his family for a season. Dave's grandfather, Granddaddy Mauer, um, had a farm in Brawley, California, and was really, really into growing things, both to support his large family and also because that was kind of his heart. In fact, we were having a party at our fairly new home in San Clemente after we'd first moved there, and we were having a um, family reunion. And so we, like we often do, and you probably do too, we were getting ready for everybody to come, so we worked really hard in the garden, and we put up a fence, and we did all this flower, all these flowers and made it really pretty in the backyard. And Dave was taking Granddaddy around and showing him all the work that we had done, and he kind of nodded and acknowledged all the work, and he said, but Dave, there's not a damn thing to eat. (laughs) (laughs) These passages that we had last week in Matthew and that we have this week are, are agrarian, agrarian garden type ish, uh, images, these parables. But I want to talk to you for a second before we hit these images. I want to set the context a little bit for you in this whole chapter of Matthew. This chapter 13 in Matthew is a chapter of parables. Now, Marianne did a great job last week of talking to you about how difficult parables can be and how challenging they are and how quite often, I don't know about you, but I've heard people preach on parables and they make me feel terribly guilty or terribly afraid. And, and so, and so these, these, these parables in this chapter, we have the one of the soils that we heard last week, the good and bad soil, rocky, the path, the thorns, all of that in the good soil. We, had, we have wheat and tares today. And then immediately following these are the parable of the mustard seed, the parable of the yeast, the parable of the treasure buried in a field, the pearl of great price, and the great catch of fish. And every single one of these parables, including the one last week and the one today and the ones coming in the, in, later in the chapter, they all begin with this phrase that Jesus says as he starts to tell the parable. He says, 
the kingdom of heaven is like. And then he starts telling the parable. The kingdom of heaven is like. It's kind of like he's saying, this is what it looks like when God is working. The kingdom of heaven is like. This is what it looks like when God is at work. And I think it's helpful when we look at these parables to think about this is what God's work looks like. Now, the scary thing about today's is, I don't know about you, but I don't want to be the weeds that are thrown, in and thrown into the burning lake of fire. <laughs> and that can be really scary. And he certainly is, Jesus certainly is teaching about the end times when he comes again to rule and reign. But it's a little bit broader than that. He's talking about this is what it looks like when God is at work. Right now, this is what it looks like when God is at work. Remember, in lots of places in the Gospels, Jesus kept saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is right now. So if this is what the kingdom looks like, it's both now and then sometime off in the future, okay? It's, as they taught us in seminary, it's an already and a not yet. We're already experiencing the kingdom of heaven, but we're not yet experiencing the fullness of that because we live in a broken world. So this is, Jesus says, is what the kingdom looks like. There's this field that this, this farmer plants with wheat. He tills it. He prepares it. He does what all good farmers do, gets the soil ready, plants good seed, and then his enemy comes along and plants weeds, tares. Now, these tares are a particular kind of weed called darnel, and it's poisonous, and they have really invasive root systems. And the thing about darnel is it looks just like wheat when it's growing. You can't tell the difference between the wheat and the tares. Not until the very last, when the wheat develops the little heads of wheat grain on the top, that is what distinguishes it between the tares, the wheat, the darnel. So, so when his servants come and tell him that all of these weeds have been sown in his, in his fields, he says, don't try to pull them up because you'll pull up the good with the bad. Let them grow. Let them intermingle. And then at the appointed time of harvest, we'll know what's good and what's bad based on the heads of wheat. Okay? So that's basically the parable that Jesus gives us. Well, I want us to think kind of um, not quite so literally when we look at this parable. I want us to think about the, our, own, the, our own condition of our own hearts. We have dry soil. We have good soil. We have rocky soil. We have barren soil. We have wheat, and we have weeds. We have, we're a mix, aren't we? We're the already and not yet embodied as people. We have things that we do really well and we do graciously and that express the love of God, and then we have attitudes of our hearts that, aren't, that don't make us really proud and, in fact, can be quite shameful. If only people knew. 
And so if we think about the condition of our hearts as this field, we all have both weeds and wheat growing in the soil of our hearts. Look at Jacob in our Old Testament. This story, this dysfunctional family, the sibling rivalry, and, and you know, it's kind of the smothers brother's mom always liked you best. Well, in Jacob's case, it's true, right? <laughs> and, and, and Jacob steals Esau's birthright. Esau gives up his birthright for a pot of soup. They're both at fault, right, if you want to place blame. Neither of them are really paying attention to the blessings of God. They're both grabbing at stuff. And yet, what happens? Jacob goes, goes off. He gets, his mom says, get out of here. Esau's going to kill you. So go to my brother Laban. And he falls asleep on his way there. Nighttime comes and he camps out. And he has this dream of Jacob's ladder. It's a famous dream. And probably for the first time for Jacob, he actually becomes aware of God working in the field of his heart. Because God promises, I mean, he was real greedy, right? He wanted, he wanted the covenantal blessing from his dad, and he wanted to inherit the land and all the blessings of a firstborn son. But then God says, in spite of your deviousness, in spite of your scheming, in spite of your hard-heartedness, I'm going to still make this come true in your life. I'm going to show you how faithful I am as your God. has nothing to do with you. Lord knows Jacob doesn't deserve it, right? <laughs> doesn't deserve the sort of blessing that's promised him. But God comes to him in this dream, comes down the ladder, and Jacob ascends the ladder. There's this free communion with God in this dream, and God says, I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to bless you in spite of yourself. <laughs> God takes the weeds of Jacob's life and seeks to transform them. A couple modern-day examples of, of of this same sort of transformation. One of my heroes loved this man, loved how God changed him and, and used him in a remarkable way. Chuck Colson. He's one of the most ruthless people in Nixon's cabinet. He was, um, he was a pretty brutal guy. In fact, he was quoted as saying, I would run over my own mother if it would help President Nixon. You know, he's a tough guy. Oh, oh, real charmer. Um, and then, you know, Watergate happens, and he gets thrown into prison. And God gets a hold of the soil of his heart. And you all know the story, I think. He became, he became a man who was completely transformed and sold out for God, so much so that he created a prison ministry that still goes on to this day that is changing the lives of incarcerated people. Pretty weedy heart, pretty weedy soil, that Chuck Colson. And yet, when God got a hold of him, 
the transformation happened. Those weeds changed from something ugly and destructive to something beautiful and helpful. And then the other guy, I just recently read about him. He just passed away this last month, I think. His name is Louis Zamperini. How many of you have heard of Louis Zamperini? Okay. He um, was a juvenile delinquent. There's a book written about him called Unbroken. Highly recommend it. Um, he was a juvenile delinquent. And he could run faster than all of his friends. So whenever he was stealing and robbing in the town of Torrance, he could outrun trouble most of the time. But the police were regular visitors to his home in the 30s. And his older brother realized that he, he had to do something to help Louis not go down a path that he couldn't recover from. So he got him into running, because Louis already had the talent. Well, Louis ran in the Berlin Olympics in front of Hitler along with Jesse Owen, and everybody in the running world thought that he was probably going to be the first person to break the four-minute mile. But then World War II happened, and he was in the Air Force, I believe, and ended up stationed in the South Pacific on a plane um, with, a, with a crew. Long story short, he was shot down. He was at sea on a raft with two other men for, um, I think it's close to 40 days, no food, no water, uh, survived, got taken prisoner of war, uh, endured incredibly difficult circumstances in the prisoner of war camp in Japan, several of them that he was moved around, ended up weighing 50-something pounds when he got out, suffered from post-traumatic post stress disorder, um, became an alcoholic, was destructive wherever he went, and then God got a hold of him. He took the weeds of Louis's life and transformed them into something that was productive and beautiful. He, Louis Zamperini ended up working with delinquent kids and providing camps and counsel for them in, in, a, in addition to conversion to Christ over the rest of his life because God got a hold of Louis Zamperini. The deal with the weeds and the tares is, the wheat and the tares, is we all have both in our lives, in the soil of our hearts. We all are in the already and the not yet. We all have the hope and the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness and the love of Jesus Christ. But we also blow it. Sin enters in bad attitudes, selfishness, regret, broken relationships, fill in the blank, but we're a mix. We're the already and the not yet spiritually. But we have a God who takes the things that seem unredeemable in our lives and transforms them and redeems them. We have a God that knows us so well and loves us so completely that he doesn't see the impossibility 
of the condition of our hearts. He sees opportunity instead. I love Psalm 139. It's my favorite psalm of all the psalms, and I've got some that I love, but I love Psalm 139 that was sung today. I love, I love it because it speaks of how known each of us are to God. That there's nothing we can do, nothing we can say, nowhere we can go where we can escape God's presence. This is how God works. He never leaves us or forsakes us. He's always with us. He's always aware of what we're doing, what we're thinking, what we're saying, which can be scary, but, you know, he's always there even when we're not aware of God's presence. This God who loves us and knows us intimately, better than we know ourselves, takes the soil of our hearts and takes the stuff that's ugly and the stuff that's beautiful and loves us because of and in spite of it all. He takes what's ugly and transforms it. He takes what's beautiful and grows it. And it's his work. That's the great thing about God. That's the great thing about living with Christ in our lives is it's not up to us to fix it. It's not up to us to fix it. Our job is to just say, okay, here I am, Lord. You know how ugly I am. You know my faults and my shortcomings, and you know the stuff that I do well, too. Take, take me and do what you will. That's the hope that Paul talks about in the Romans passage. We're adopted as God's precious children. We have friends, you probably, some of you probably know people, or some of you may have adopted children. When a family adopts a child, it's, it's such a realized dream, isn't it? There's so much hope in that, in that adoption process where, where this longed-for child or these longed-for children finally come to be. And Paul tells us that we're adopted by God. And in fact, we have the same status as his son Christ, as his adopted children. That's the kind of love that this God that takes the soil of our hearts and the rocky ground and the dry ground and the weedy ground, that takes that and transforms it. Because that's the the way God works. The kingdom of heaven is like a God who loves each of us so much that he looks beyond what seems hopeless and sees what is beautiful. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.